0: Welcome to the Tennis with an Accent podcast. I am Matt Zemick along with Sakib Ali. And we are starting a new chapter in this podcast existence. And we first want to thank the good people at Radio Influence, which have been our partners since the U.S. Open. Um, Jason Floyd and Jerry Pettick are the guys who run Radio Influence. They were very good to us. They certainly uh, increased the visibility of our podcast. But uh, we, we wanted to seek new possibilities for what we can achieve with this podcast after being given a start. And uh, the new company that we are working with uh, for the production of our podcasts is Red Circle. And so we want you to follow Red Circle on Twitter at GetRedCircle. Circle. Uh, and we will certainly have more to tell you about Red Circle in the weeks to come but this is our first podcast with red circle we're very pleased uh, to be able to announce this new partnership and let's get right to business so madrid has just ended as we are recording this podcast you are listening to it during the middle of the week but we're, we madrid is over so we have everything from madrid to discuss and so for that i'm going to throw it to you Sokka, so you can get our conversation started
1: uh, thank you, Matt. And uh, we also have our Tennis with an Accent friend and contributor Mert Tertunga, who we call Coach Mert because he's actually coach on the tour and has uh, his own tennis background. But uh, today we are discussing uh, what the results of Madrid means in the grand scheme of things with French Open almost two weeks away now. Welcome to the show, Mert.
2: Hi, Saqib. Hello, Matt. How are you guys doing?
1: It couldn't be better. Uh, so. So yeah, Sunday evening and Madrid final was played between Novak Djokovic and Stefano Sitsipas, ended a couple of hours ago. I'm sure we all have a lot of thoughts, but uh, Mert, you and I did a podcast which was setting the prelude to the clay court season. And you had your top five rankings for the men as far as like, the power players go for the clay season. Have those changed since uh, we spoke and after Madrid and what does that mean in the grand scheme of things?
2: Well, the 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 for me, what changed is actually um, the top uh, the top two. It's it's kind of a strange answer, but uh, if you remember last month when we talked, I still considered uh, Rafa to be uh, just just a bit slightly above Djokovic. I, I'm talking fifty-one to forty-nine or fifty-two to forty-eight percent. But I think now I would uh, reverse those. In other words, just give the slight edge to no- no- Novak Djokovic after his. Uh, performance um, today especially in the finals against Tsitsipas and but more importantly because I, uh, I what I've seen from Nadal is uh, a solid level below what he usually puts out on clay courts and then you know Rafa himself has, uh, has said something about that he said that what ha- what's been happening for so many years for over a dozen years is abnormal and, uh, and what is happening this year where I don't have any clear court titles should have happened more often. And he's, he's right on point, uh, but it's just that from watching his matches this week and in the, the previous tournaments and from watching Novak in this tournament getting better and better and finally playing his best match I feel today, I'm reversing those two. So I'm putting Joe, Novak at one, Rafa at two. And I know, Sakib, you don't agree with this, but I'm keeping Roger Federer at three. Dominic, team at four, and at number five, it's very interesting. It's it's a hard pick. You could you 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 could have, Wawrinka. Um, you could have now. You could consider Sitsipas. You could consider a number of players there. I'm personally going to go with um, with Kane Shikori, at number five. A bit of an outsider.
1: Uh, interesting. So I've already given uh, you know my thoughts on this, and I'll ch- you know chip in more. But Matt, uh, you know you're NBA guys. Who are your Power five and uh, have they changed? if you had one going into the season in Monte Carlo and how they stack up on the men's side with two weeks away uh, for French Open and Rome starts, Rome's already started, but main players will be playing tomorrow. Who are your top
0: five? Uh, so Madrid didn't really change the ultimate order. Uh, I'm going to still trust Rafa, but, but the, what what Madrid did change is the extent to which I'm prepared to trust Rafa uh, you know, I, I felt very confident about Rafa heading into Madrid, but now as we leave Madrid, I think that Rafa and Djokovic are really on, on the same plane, uh, fundamentally 50-50. Uh, and then team is very much my my third choice, and I'd put him well ahead of any other non-raffal player, and then I'd probably have Stan Wawrinka at four simply because he, you know, he loves the five set format. He can play his way into the tournament. Obviously it depends on the draw. That's one of my big reminders for whenever we assess hierarchies of favorites and contenders. Um, But if he gets a tolerable draw, um, you know, he, he is still up there. And then at five, you know, I don't even know, I don't even think we should assign like a fifth favorite. I think that's waiting to be determined partly by the draw, partly by what we see in Rome. I mean, if if Alexander Zverev plays well in Rome, I think he probably gets that spot, but uh, obviously no one should expect him to play well in Rome, given the form that we've seen from him. So I'm just going to leave that fifth spot open, but I think that team is definitely a strong third, and and, uh, Djokovic certainly reduced the gap with Nadal at Madrid. Uh, comparing the start of the tournament to where we stand now after the tournament.
1: Yeah, I think uh, if I may add uh, two cents of my own and uh, when Mert um, we spoke about, I had I think Djokovic and Nadal as co-favorites, if I'm not mistaken. And I think Djokovic is the only one guy besides Soderling who can beat Nadal in best of five. He's done it in 2015. That was also the year when Nadal came into Rome without a title, left Rome without a title and did not win, I believe, any title that year. So I'm going to just give Djokovic that edge if uh, the two were to face off in the finals. And uh, the, that seems like you know the, the way to go. So let me throw this back to you, Matt. When you put Wawrinka in there, his resume on best of five is far superior than the shorter format. But when I assess these players, and you're right, we don't have the draw. We don't know how these guys are stacked up. But do you pick Wawrinka against the field? Because he's the fourth best choice. That's how you see it, or because you didn't even take Federer, which is fine. He hasn't been on clay uh, for that. You know, he's been gone for three years, and Madrid is slightly a faster uh, clay coach. So, so when you put, put put Wawrinka, you're just doing how he matches up against the field. He can come through t- tricky draws. That's how you view this.
0: Well, fundamentally, in terms, I'm talking in terms of the ability to win at Roland Garros. That that is ultimately the the frame. Or the prism through which I'm uh, look, looking at this. You know, the team has made a Roland Garros final. Vavrinka has won Roland Garros and made another final. You know, in terms of players you expect to do well at Roland Garros, uh, you know, Vavrinka would actually rate ahead of team, but, you know, team's form of course is so much better uh, than Vavrinka's right now. So, you know, that's why team would be uh, ahead of stand. But if you, uh, get past Nadal, Djokovic, and team, and you're looking at everyone else uh, in terms of Roland Garros' credentials and the capacity to be able to do well at this particular tournament, the French Open, Stan is, uh, in my mind, clearly ahead of everyone else. And I want to point out something. You know, I wrote a, a few weeks ago in late April uh, a column at tennisaccent.com, our website, on the ATP's, quote-unquote, 630 problem. And that that notion being that if you look at players ranked 6 through 30 on the ATP tour, um, no one's really catching fire. You know, that that is a, a very stagnant group of players. Um, on Twitter, over the weekend, um, Brianna Faust, one of our contributors, she asked, how the heck is Delpo still in the top 10? And it exactly goes to that point about how the ATP after the top five is very stagnant. Um, you know, the, the the Russians have occasionally made some moves. You know, with Medvedev uh, beating Djokovic in Monte Carlo, and you, you you think for a brief period of time that one of them is really going to catch fire and get on a sustained roll, but it never really happens. And really, no one in that subset. I mean, you know, Fanini won Monte Carlo, but. Uh, you know, didn't, didn't, you know, the team beat him very convincingly in Madrid. So, it, it, because no one from six through 30 is really catching fire, and you have Stan ranked, uh, I believe, 20, number 29 at this point, uh, you know, I, I don't really feel that it's unwise or unrealistic to put Stan as the fourth favorite after uh, Rafa Djokovic and team.
1: Okay, so over to you, Mur, just to carry this conversation. And you firmly believe Roger Federer is number three. So, what did you see in Madrid? Even though Madrid plays faster, it's above the, you know, above the sea, you know, the sea level compared to tournaments like Rome and Paris. So, uh, are, are, are you think, uh, in, in in your opinion, are you uh, happy with what you see with Federer, or was it expected, or does this mean anything going forward? Which I know in your mind it does, but I just want to hear from you uh, on Federer's performance.
2: No, I think uh, I personally expected Roger to to come into this tournament, even though it's his first tournament in three years, to to still do well and and be a and be a menace to to the top so considered the clay court players, and he was. He uh, he, he he defeated Monfis He was down match points, but de- defeated Monfis and then and then gave Dominic Team a very good match. A match in for more than fifty percent of the time, he was. Uh, he was the better player, and uh, he dominated the team. In fact, for about a set and a half, so um, I uh, I am definitely picking uh, Feder. What I what I saw from him was uh, was very encouraging. Although again, I was expecting that he would come in and play the same type of game that he's that he's playing um, again. You know, on other surfaces, which means attack and attack and attack as much as he can. And uh, and he's able to pull that off on on clay courts too because because of the variety in his game, right? He can slice, he can topspin, he can angle, he can uh, loop it, and, he can, and his second serve becomes a major force on uh, on clay courts. So yes, he can. Uh, he did he did well. I uh, I I I firmly believe that uh, that he did about as well as he could do here in Madrid, and and uh, I'll be very curious to see how far he gets in Rome. Because, uh, like the two of you said earlier, uh, and many people have said this before too, you know, Rome is a better um, indicator of, uh, of how players may perform at the French Open because of the, uh, because of the similarity of surfaces and conditions. Uh, and uh, we will see. I'm, I'm certainly glad that uh, Roger is playing uh, Rome. Um, I know some people think, well, maybe that's too much. I don't think so. He's 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 committed to playing on clear courts. I thought he should have done this back in 2017, but he chose not to. He knows better than anyone else. Scheduling issues, but I'm but on on a personal level. I'm glad he's uh, he's playing uh, Rome, and we will see how he does. I I think he's going to do well there too, and he's going to be prime and ready to go at the French Open. Yes, I I, I do think he what he showed. What I feel. Uh, what I consider, what I consider the kind of performance that still makes me comfortable with me picking him uh, as the third favorite beyond Djokovic and Nadal.
1: Okay, so let's talk about Novak Djokovic. I mean, he came into uh, Madrid with some some questions, not too many questions. You know, he's uh, undisputedly you know holding uh, the three majors uh, uh, that he last won. But at the same time, the best of three format, losing to Cole Kohlschreiber, then Batista Good, and also did not win his, uh, you know, in in Monte Carlo. So uh, Mert again, uh, are you okay with his level as a, as a favorite? Because you made him the favorite, but you think he also benefited by not playing a match this week? And uh, or you you know you can only control things that that fall your way. You can't control an opponent's health. But Djokovic, you know, in the end was pretty convincing.
2: Yes, that's that's the part that uh, convinced me, Sakib. I agree that. Uh... That Djokovic's level was not where it needed to be prior to, let's say Friday, and uh, or Thursday this week. Uh, what he has shown so far, you know, I believe Matt just mentioned the six thirty group, and uh, you could almost say that uh, you know the, the 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 big the big three. Well, uh, at least Djokovic and Nadal didn't really catch fire either. Uh, in terms of the quality of their play, in terms of the level of their play. and uh, But Djokovic finally broke through, I felt, in the semifinals and the finals, even in the semis against Dominic Thiem. Uh, if, if you consider, for example, the first tiebreaker, or in the totality of the match, he had some very good moments, but he didn't play from start to finish, the kind of match that we're used to seeing from Novak when he's, uh, when he's clearly the number one player in the world. But I felt today he did. He, he started from the first point, uh, honed in to, the, to, to his targets and, uh, and hit, uh, hit the shots that he wanted to, kept it deep, returned well, did, uh, did everything that he usually does well. His trademark shots were on fire. And uh, after the last two matches, now I feel like he, he is, at least he is, at the level that he needs to be.
1: Hmm. Okay, so Matt, same question but a little more elaboration on your viewpoint. You've you write, you know, you've covered all these top players and Novak has won Rome four times. And uh, and this is a guy who's you know who's, who's been you know the cream of the crop. He's fared reasonably well in these tournaments that are back to back. And this is a tougher stretch than Indian Wells in Miami because it's just a week long tournament, not like ten day tournaments that we have in North America. So you think Djokovic rides this into Rome as your clear favorite? I know by the time podcast is released, uh, Rome would be in full flight, and some people may listen to it when Djokovic lost or he won Rome, but. Couldn't resist the temptation to not have this question included.
0: Well, you know, he doesn't roll into Paris as the clear favorite, but you know, not you know, not with an 11-time Roland Garros champion on the other half of the draw. But the you know, the clear significance of Madrid for Djokovic is that you know, after drifting through Indian Wells in Miami and eliciting you know, at least some degree of uncertainty about how he was going to play as 2019 continued, you know, that uncertainty has been put to bed very clearly. You know, the, the, and I think we can all agree that as soon as Djokovic won championship point against Rafa in the Australian Open in Melbourne, that clay became the centerpiece of his season. You know, clay was going to be the mountaintop period of the ATP season because of what's potentially at stake with the Novak Slam with being able to be the first guy to beat Nadal in a Roland Garros final, I mean, with all the historical significance, uh, which, which is waiting to be claimed uh, in Paris. So Clay was always going to be, once the Australian Open ended, uh, the centerpiece of Djokovic's season. And I think that you know the level of attentiveness he brought to Indian Wells in Miami and compared to the level of attentiveness – we saw in Madrid this past week. I think it's a very natural, organic uh, plot development. And, you know, it's, it's, it's worth noting that, you know, the NBA playoffs are going on. And I know that I do talk about basketball in, in a lot of my tennis articles, but it really is a salient point. And, I, I, you know, I keep bringing this up because I do think it's relevant that as an athlete, when you keep going through the battles again and again and again, time after time and, and, and the miles add up on your legs um, and you keep playing more and more tennis and the years accumulate, you, know, you are going to get to a point as you get older where you're going to pick your spots a little more. And that doesn't mean you don't care about every single tournament. It doesn't mean you're not hungry. It just means that the mind's going to be a little fresher, a little more focused at certain points rather than others, you know, we can see this with the, the, the Warriors that, you know, they, they tuned out dozens of regular season games, not because they're lazy, just because they've been playing a lot of basketball over the past half decade. You know, their minds are just can't be on all the time. But now we're seeing them, you know, dial in now that the moment is really significant. And I think that the way Djokovic is playing Clay's season, compared to uh, Indian Wells and Miami and even Monte Carlo, you know, which is still two months away from Roland Garros, you know, I think we can see that same organic progression. So you know, maybe it was reasonable to ask a few questions after Indian Wells, Miami, and Monte Carlo, but those questions are gone, and you know, Djokovic is still Djokovic, and he and Rafa are still you know, the two players to beat, uh, just as we all thought it was going to be.
1: So just to add to that, I think, Matt, that's kind of a very excellent observation. Sometimes we do take uh, you know these magnificent athletes for granted and we always say, OK, he or she won so many matches in this year, maybe by a small percentage that level has dropped. But uh, uh, the way I look at it, and I was very intrigued by some of the narratives for Djokovic was maybe he's just more dialed in when he sees a Dominic team because he's achieved so much. And again, all the three losses, including the one to Medvedev, kind of, you know, made him want this title more. Not that he didn't try his best there. I think he was just ready for the challenge. That's how I see it when, you know, he was playing Dominic Team yesterday. I missed most of the final today. So I cannot comment on, you know, Novak's quality, but it looks like, you know, he was pretty good today as well.
0: Is is that being directed to... No, me that, yeah,
1: Mark- no that was for you, Matt. Sorry, I thought I said that, yeah. Oh,
0: well, just, you know, it, I think that... You know he had the uh, the the walkover against Chilich, and so early against Team. And you know we we all remember this as historians of tennis that when Federer snapped Djokovic's long match winning streak in the 2011 Roland Garros semifinals, Djokovic came off a walkover in in the quarterfinals. Fanini gave him a walkover, and so that interruption of rhythm. Uh, seemed to hurt Djokovic, at least, in, at least in my mind. Now, we can disagree on that point, but we all remember that, that Djokovic got the walkover in, in the quarters. So at the start of the team match, you know, I certainly felt that the, the uh, source of concern for Djokovic was that he wouldn't be quite as sharp and locked in, whereas team had that three-set battle against Federer, and, and so team had reason to be very confident and to come out guns blazing and so the main challenge for Djokovic was to rise to team's level early in that match. And once he did, you know, if that break to get to three-three, uh, it seems it seems as though once that happened, you know, the 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 Djokovic we know, the Djokovic we're familiar with, was back on course. Now he did play some ragged sequences in the second set, uh, but but after playing those ragged sequences, he was able to immediately go back to. L- the low mistake, efficient tennis uh, that, you know, he's always capable of playing when at his best or close to his best. So, you know, there were, there were a few bumpy periods, but they didn't linger, you know, and, and that's, that's the hallmark of an elite athlete, that bad periods are minimized. It's not just that you maximize good periods, is that you minimize the bad ones. And that's certainly what Djokovic did against team, and he was able to carry that, right into the final against Tsitsipas.
1: Sorry, I was on mute. So uh, Mert, let's bring you back in the conversation and talk more Novak Djokovic and his final with Tsitsipas. So he did not face a break point today. How impressive is that a stat in a final? considering, you know, he was playing uh, the young Greek who's been all guns blazing of late.
2: Yes, it's the, that's quite impressive. But what, but what was more impressive to me, Sakib, is that, uh, you know, each player has a certain um, signature shot or certain patterns that they really like, and they, uh, they, uh, they, they, they build up the points so they can play those patterns, or they choose to go to their strong shots when they really feel good. And usually those are the shots that, if they hit well, propels them to, to a higher level of confidence. Uh, you know, you could you could, for example, mention Nadal's running forehand down the line passing shot that if that I'm sure you can find highlights of on YouTube where he's that he's hit over the years, and that's a shot that Rafa really likes. And when he's feeling when he's feeling confident, he makes those. You could say um, you could, for example, talk the same way about a certain pattern. For example. Uh, Roger slicing with the backhand short, pulling the opponent forward, having them slice backhand and then running around his forehand and hitting the winner. That's a pattern that uh, Federer likes. and these these, uh, these players use those patterns or hit those shots when they're feeling good. And uh, and I can say the same thing for Novak's backhand down the line. And when I say backhand down the line, I don't mean just uh, you know getting your feet set and and uh, driving or accelerating a backhand down the line for the winner. When Djokovic feels good, he can hit that backhand down the line when he's falling back on his body, if he's, wide o- if he's got wide open stance as he's sliding, uh, which is a very tough thing to do as a two-hander when you're sliding to hit that backhand down the line, or even on the run. And today he started um, three out of the first seven games, if I remember correctly, with backhand down the line winners. I mean, he's, one of them was the 3-2 game, I believe uh, one of them was a bit later in the set at 5-2. But he started those games with a backhand down the line winner. And all three of them were different. When one of them, he got to step in and then go for it. And another one, it was also a very deep shot of Sitsipas, And he was in a defensive position. Most, most people at that moment would just want to get that ball back in. He nails a down-the-line winner on that one, and then later on he hit another one that was uh, from a little bit behind the baseline, not a really offensive position, but he wasn't on his back foot either. In other words, the, the players, when they feel good, when they feel on top of their game, when they feel confident, they choose to go for those shots of, of, uh, about which they feel uh, – th- th- which makes them feel good You know, when, when they hit those shots. And you can only pull those when you're extremely confident – you know, Federer sometimes puts on a clinic on second serves. That's because he actually feels confident about his serve. It's it's kind of ironic to say because you would think that if he's feeling good about his serve, he'd get a lot of first serves in. Well, maybe he does. But if he doesn't, his second serve still gets the job done. And uh, and, and Djokovic today on his overall baseline game was in that zone. He was, keep, he was keeping the balls extremely deep. Uh, Tsitsipas was not hitting... Uh, regular rally shots. He was sitting a pretty heavy ball and, and Novak was just getting them back deep and nailing that backhand down the line. And his returns were on. Uh, he's, uh, he, he looked very good. You know, we talked about the earlier parts of the tournament that may have something to do with it. He, it's true that he um, he only got to play uh, three matches to the, in, in, on the way to the finals and he played against a player who's, who's put in a lot more hours on the court. But that doesn't take away anything from the, the level that Novak showed today.
1: me. I think some great I mean, points really uh, uh, you make, Mert. And uh, I would say, because I watched the Djokovic team match, and I think that's probably uh, the stepping stone for the performance Novak put out today. I didn't see the final, but I think he was pretty good yesterday. And he treated that match, in his mind, team as a favorite, he said afterwards. And you could see the poise. And, you know, and, you know Novak was really playing some great tennis yesterday. So on that note, let's switch gears. To Stefano Sitsipas, and uh, you both are, you know, you, boy, you both are tough sell. I thought after his uh, final ascendance to the uh, to Madrid final, you both would have him in somewhere in the top five or six, but you guys are a tough audience to please. But let's talk about this uh, young Greek. He's been making quite inroads, he's top, you know, top eight now, and I think uh, he's having a, quite a stellar year. So, Mert, first with you, and then Matt, you can answer the same question. What was so impressive and how he dealt with Nadal, even though nadal wasn't close to his best but it was still a very masterful win for the young greek
2: yes yeah uh, well he the thing about uh, tsitsipas is that he's got an all around game he can um, he can accelerate the ball he can hit high top spin he can um, flatten out and he's got a this guy he, he, he's got a very good serve but although he could improve even more but uh, but, he, but his first serve is good enough to bounce up on the returners and earn that next ball, which is which, which is what he likes to do. He likes the one-two punch. Another thing that, uh, that uh, favors Titsipas on clay courts is he's the, he's the kind of guy who likes to hit shots from about his chest level. In other words, he would, he would like his contact point to be where the ball has jumped high enough to get to about his chest, shoulder level, and he can hit very good smacks from high up. He's a, tall, he's a tall dude anyway, so it helps him in, in that sense. It, it is li- his less favorite level is probably below the knee or around the knee. For example, he's got a higher sweet spot on the ground strokes than, say, Rafael Nadal does. Nadal likes it a little bit lower. And, um, and therefore, clay courts actually help him set up his forehand uh, better by, 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 just by, the, by virtue of having the ball bounce higher. And in return, he puts a lot of uh, uh, rotation on the ball himself. So his ball bounces back with just as much force, if even with more force than when it comes. So I'm not surprised that he's, he's, uh, he's, uh, he's playing a successful game on clay. Of course, it's surprising that he beats, he beats Rafa, but he did attack Rafa uh, at the right moments. He did not pass up on any short balls. He had a game plan going into the match with Rafa and that was just to just to attack uh, Rafa's backhand side mainly and anytime he got a short ball either drop shot or uh, or or uh, simply run around the backhand and nail that forehand and follow it up to the net and like I said he's got an all-around game so he's got good skills at the net he's got great coverage at the net he can with one step he can cover uh, 60 to 70% of the net area so it, a lot worked to his advantage, but but the main key was that was that he had a good early start to impose his game because he came out with the right game plan. And by the way, he also came out with the right game plan today against Djokovic too. It's just that he made mistakes in his first service game early in the match and he fell behind. But uh, he's got a good mind. He's got high IQ. S- Sitsipas does. I'm I'm just uh, uh Sakib. I'm just uh, apprehensive about announcing anybody as in in the top three or four or five tier of a major tournament yet unless i actually see them do something in the major in the majors. not since did don't get me wrong uh, just at the australian open but uh, i want to see one more time if he can do this on clay against uh against top players i do believe that he can get to the quarters I just don't know if in a three out of five situation how he, I I don't know if I can still pick him as the favorite to win if he has to play, uh, Federer, Team, Djokovic, Nadal, or even a player like even though he beat him in this tournament, I'm not sure if I can pick him for example against a a more um, experienced player like say Fognini. You know someone like Fabio Fognini could could get the best out of. Um, so that's why I'm not picking him top five. But I, but I like him I like him a lot.
1: I thought you were going to say <laughs> Sasha Zverev.
2: No, 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 no. Okay. All right. Well, well you know, Zverev is a good player too, by the way. He could very well beat Titsipas if, if they were to play in the French Open. But at this point, I, I see Tsitsipas as a more dangerous player than Zverev.
1: All right. So, Matt, yes. uh, if you want to weigh in the same observations, uh, you know, factor in Titsipas win over Nadal, and uh, what in your opinion, uh, Uh, Point stood out uh, for that match for Sitsipas, and also Nadal's movement uh, is there, but he didn't seem like Nadal of old, which is fine. I mean, after 15 years of sheer dominance, he's allowed to have, you know, these kind of nights where he still gave it his all, but just didn't look like Nadal.
0: Yeah, I mean, Nadal just didn't have it. And I mean, that takes nothing away from Sitsipas, but Nadal made a lot of very ordinary mistakes. You know, he was not... Going he was not making uh errors on ambitious uh shots. He was making you know volley errors at net, uh m- you know, missing shots that he should make in his sleep. But that point aside, in terms of sitsipas, the thought that that strikes me is that th- this recalls for me now I'm not talking about the playing style, I'm talking about evolution as a player. Sitsipas in 2019 against the doll reminds me of Del Poe in 2009 against Federer. If you remember, Del Poe got absolutely demolished by Federer in the 2009 Australian Open quarterfinals. I think it was 3-3 in love uh, or something like that. There was at least one bagel. Might have been two, but at least one. Yeah,
1: probably and two bagels. In the
0: French, yeah. yeah, okay. So in the, And then in the 2009 French Open, Del Poe took Federer five, very nearly won the match. He was up two sets to one. He tied 3-3 in the, uh, in the fifth, you know, so you could see the immense evolution, and it required something really special from Federer late in that match to win. Obviously, Nadal didn't deliver something special, but you could just see from Australia to France that a, a, young, a very young player who got his behind walloped uh, was able to dramatically reduce the gap and learn the lessons that were there to be learned. Now, I'm not predicting that uh, Paz is going to beat Nadal in the 2019 U.S. Open final, but nevertheless, just the jump from Melbourne uh, to Madrid uh, w- was reminiscent of the progression that Delpo made against Federer. And you know, so, you know, obviously Delpo's career has not been everything that it could have been, but it's, we, we say that, we note that because of injuries, not because Delpo has been lacking in terms of tennis IQ. Or overall acumen, you know, hopefully Sitsipas will be able to enjoy health, you know, for his full career. He shows the signs of being the kind of player who is going to make the relevant adjustments uh, and who is going to keep a cool head in very tight pressure situations. I mean, that is that is the clear takeaway from this match against Nadal. And it's and, you know, he could have lost this match 6'4 or 7-5 in the third would not have meaningfully affected how I view him. The, fa- the fact that he was re- able to reduce the gap with Nadal this profoundly in this short a time, and we did re- we do- it's worth remembering just how befuddled he was after that match in Australia. Um, you know, I-, I thought, oh, okay, this is going to be a really tough hill for him to climb. Not that he wouldn't climb it, but that it would take some time for him to do it. Well, obviously, not nearly as much time as I thought. So that just shows a lot of maturity for someone who is still just 20 years old. You compare Tsitsipas at 20 to any of the other many next-gen players, uh, Tsitsipas is generally ahead of the curve.
2: All right, so one I had, thing, uh, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, just one thing very quickly I'd like to add to Matt's point there about mental maturity. Let's also keep in mind, and I'm just going to add this as a side note in less than 30 seconds, Let's also keep in mind that some of the biggest wins that Tsitsipas had in his young age so far, a couple of them actually, the one against Roger and the, at the Australian Open, and the, and the one against Rafa here, were both uh, both matches were won against a partisan crowd. In other words, he he, he had to, as a 20 year old he had to go against one of the elites of the player with the whole stadium rooting for the elite player, and uh, at at 20 years old, at the, I mean this young to keep to keep the mental resolve. Through that kind of an atmosphere, already with a with what a young tennis player may consider a legend or two on the other side of the net, is not an easy feat. So that's another thing to consider as my consider too when we're talking about Sitsipas' mental maturity.
1: No, I think that's a uh, great, great point, uh, Matt. Uh, Mert. And uh, I'll throw in my analogy. I mean, historical reference. there. I think Becker beat McEnroe in Hartford, right, years ago against a Davis Cup crowd. But yeah, those are special wins when the crowd's rooting for a legend and you're an upstart. So, Matt, let me stick with you for one more question. I know you you are a big critic of how these semifinals are split in these Masters 1000 events. And you had a lot to say on Twitter. So, I would like to give you you know the platform here on your own podcast to weigh in uh, why this is wrong in terms of scheduling when you know there's no recovery time. And all the top players have been part of this before. Djokovic, Nadal, Federer, they've all played these semifinals and you know vice versa. And they know tournament is a business, but uh, could business be looking after the players a little better when something like this should be avoided?
0: Well, the most precise point to make about Madrid, you know, there are split session semifinals at various stops on tour. But with Madrid, you know, Madrid has a late evening Sunday final. And so the second semifinal in Madrid ends around midnight. I mean, it has ended very late at night for a while. So I don't think there's another Masters semifinal which r- normally ends so late at night on Saturday as Madrid. I don't think there's any later Masters s- semifinal on the whole tour. And so even let's say even if you allow for the existence of split session semifinals, which you know, I think which I hate as as you all know, but even even if you allow for that at least if you're going to have split session semifinals have the first semifinal at noon and the second one at 7 why have the first semifinal at 4 and the second one after the women's final you know around 10:30 that is crazy and i don't, I don't you know i don't see how we can be in the 21st century in 2019 and you know have players Competing at the highest level, finishing a Masters semifinal around midnight, uh, you know, bef- before their Sunday final. You know, that even, even though the, fi- the, the final is, you know, a 640 start in the evening, you know, putting players through weird body clock situations, it's such a preventable error. And that, that, that really is the, the, the number one thing to emphasize about this. I mean, we, we know the other aspects of the split-session semifinals and why they're horrible, you know, that you put one player in an advantageous position and you disadvantage the other, uh, you know, and that you invite the natural question, well, what if the two semifinals were played together? Why can't we have a normal playing field? You know, we know all of that, but Madrid is a particular violator just because, it starts the first semifinal at four for no really good reason. And it starts the second one very late at night, also for no very good reason.
1: Yeah, uh, I think, uh, Matt, that's a very valid point. I think we've spoken in the podcast last year when Nadal was playing all his matches at night and then the final in Toronto was day. So, yeah, it does happen a lot. But you're right, in Madrid, uh, the time gap uh, is, is, is a little more extreme than others. So let's get back to Sitsipas for one more uh, Question to Mert, and uh, let's also acknowledge the fact he won the title in Estoril last week. So he had quite a run from the Estoril clay to the fast clay on Madrid. So this guy can definitely play on the surface.
2: Yes, and uh, he played doubles too, by the way, during all that time. Yes, it did, and um, <laughs> so he, uh, he he put a lot of um, he put a lot of um, time into it. One uh, and one thing that I that I would like to say he's he's in pretty good shape he's, because he's played a lot of matches. Yes, today he looked tired, but uh, but but uh, let me let me point out something about today. When you uh, when you put that many hours in, and you finished just like Matt was saying just a second ago, and you know he you finished the match before. Um, Around midnight, and I read that he went to bed at 4 a.m. I thought he, I, I predicted he would not get to bed before 2:30 or 3 a.m. But I did not think 4 a.m. either. But anyway, so he got to bed at 4 a.m. Okay, it's a, it's a late evening uh, final, so that, he still gets up and plays, and, and and quite frankly, he should be able to still come out and play a good match, right? And I think he would have been fine, to be honest, if he didn't go down early in the match. What, what, uh, what killed? Um, Tsitsipas' chances, is that he went down an early break from the beginning of the match. So he had to constantly catch up to Djokovic, who was on fire to begin with. And uh, if, you were, if you were able to... Um, had he been able to stay on serve in the first set and, uh, and get to 4-all or perhaps 5-all, with that adrenaline rush, I think he could have uh, finished the match without feeling too much fatigue. Now, five minutes after he shakes hands he would have crashed, probably. But at least during the match, he would not have felt fatigue. But due to the fact that he went down love three and had to play catch-up most of the match, I do feel that uh, that he felt the fatigue of all those hours put into his life All
1: right. So, Mark, one one more question here. Again, uh, there's a big field in a Grand Slam and a lot of players who are making their move. And last week, me and Matt did not produce a podcast, so I want to ask you with this opportunity on Matteo Berrettini. This is another guy who is making quite, you know, Quite a presence, uh, and he's he's already been in two clay finals, and now he's playing Sasha Zverev, I believe, sometime tomorrow or day after in Rome. What's your assessment of his, uh, ex, uh, you know, powers in clay, and uh, you know what's what's the future looking for this lad?
2: Well, I like Berrettini. I like Berrettini like as a player, and I find them fairly quick on the court. In fact, I think he could be quicker, to be honest with you. But he's able to uh, to um, to produce a pretty good, he's got a good counter-punch game, Sakib. He's a, he's able to come up with uh, with shots from difficult positions, and he's a defe- deceptive because he doesn't come across really flashy, and yet he's able to uh, he's able to he doesn't give any free points away either. So I like Berrettini as a player. I don't think that, uh, I'm not sure. Uh, I'm not sure how he will do in Rome immediately. It's it's a home crowd, of course, and he's playing Zverev. very. I, I, I'll be honest. I don't see him beating Zverev yet at this point. No, I don't. And, I do, and I'm not sure if you're asking what his clay court, you yeah. know, prospects yeah. are for this for this year. Um, but uh, I think he needs a year. And he needs a year more to make any um, any noticeable noise, so to speak, in, in the in the in this, in the larger stage.
1: Hi, and uh, Hi. Matt. Uh, I know you've pretty you've written quite a lot about uh, his compatriot uh, Fabio Fognini, who won his first Masters one thousand title, and you've also been a very balanced, uh, you know, voice on Fonini. You don't really get easily swept by his talent, even though you acknowledge, on many accounts, that he is loaded with talent. But your style of writing, uh, just give give our listeners you who haven't had the chance to read maybe some of your articles on what Fonini's one thousand win in Monte Carlo meant in this you know, landscape of the clay season and for the Italian's career? And what does it do, in your opinion, as he approaches Roland Garros in two weeks?
0: Well, you know, in in terms of remembering what I wrote, you know, a few weeks ago from Monte Carlo, I I did recall that, you know, as much as Fanini has underachieved in his career, you know, the fact that he did finally find a way to break through is... Immense a, a, a credit to him. And, you know, a lot of players can go through a career, get into the latter stages of a career, and they never learn the lesson. They never make a turnaround. They never make, do make even one breakthrough. And so, even though winning one master's, you know, on an island, uh, you know, in isolation doesn't totally rewrite your legacy, it does elevate you past a lot of your contemporaries, a lot of your peers. And so better to have found that that one moment or a few moments than to have never found it at all. I mean, that so that is that is the significance of it for Fanini. And, you know, in terms of what it means for Paris, you know, Fanini very consistently, you know, doesn't bring his best stuff to Paris. And and more generally, Fanini, if he does well in a given tournament here, he doesn't follow up, follow it up with with great tournaments the next two three four weeks on tour so you know that that's that's kind of the larger overall reality of of fanini's career and so you know until he shows that he can stack together results but you know, but, but Matt, in all a sorry, sorry
1: to just interrupt but in all honesty a loss in madrid to dominic team isn't a bad loss after he won monte carlo would you agree
0: no, it's not a bad loss. But, I mean, if we were talking about him in a different category, you know, if he, if we were saying, wow, this is a huge transformation, he would have won it. But, no, it's certainly not a bad loss.
1: Okay, so on that note, let's bring in the WTA. We've, uh, you know, spent, like, almost 45 minutes talking to the men. It was a good conversation. So let's bring the focus on the ladies. And Kiki Bertens is, uh, you know, playing some of her best tennis, Mert. So what's your recollection of... Uh, Her form in Madrid, I don't know how many matches of her did you get to see and uh, was she a winner that you expected or this was uh, something of of an unexpected result or, again, things in Madrid really don't make her a favorite in Roland Garros. So a couple of questions, roll into one. Uh, You can tackle it or unpack it the way you want.
2: Sure. When the tournament began, I would not have picked Bertens as my favorite to win, but I would have picked her as my, say, top five, perhaps. But uh, I would not have picked her the favorite to win. But once uh, the the one match that convinced me was uh, was her win over Kvitova, Petra Kvitova, six two six three. That was a that was very clean striking by Bertens against a power player. Okay, it's true that Kvitova's um, uh, favorite surface may not be clay, but nevertheless she hits a very heavy ball, and the way Bertens was able to absorb. The power, and still, you know, it's one thing to absorb power and get balls back, but it's another thing to, to still be able to direct the or or control the amount of spin that you generate off of a hard ball. You know, when when, you, when you're just rallying with a player, for example, when Bertens was playing Halep in the finals, Simona Halep, who's a very consist, consistent player, does not hit a really really heavy ball. Uh, where you are rushed in your preparation, you just get your racket on the ball and get it back. You're able to still position your feet, or or she was able to maybe generate the heavy topspin on her forehand that she likes to hit, or even drop shot some. But against against Kvitova, who hits a much uh, harder ball at times, she was still able to do that. In other words, she's cool. She's she's cool headed enough to where she and she's, she anticipates enough to where she gets her feet set and still you know able to make a full swing or a topspin swing or generate a high loopy f- spin back or maybe a slice back even off of a hard hitter like Kvitova and that requires some skill and she did that cleanly throughout the match against Kvitova and once she once she got past her 6-2 6-3 I believe the score was in in the in the, uh, in the quarterfinals it might have been 6 2 I'm not sure but uh, she got past her cleanly then she played Sloan Stevens. I did not get to see uh, all of that match, only about four games of it. So I don't want to say I don't like to talk about matches that I, that, that I didn't get to see much. But, but Bertens at that point beating Stevens was not that big a surprise to me. And then in the finals against Halep, I thought that was probably from Bertens point of view. I don't want to say she played the best that she could because she actually played a pretty average, a below average, I want to say, first six games against Halep. Uh, she made a lot of errors, double-faulted twice, and went down, uh, rightfully, 4-2. But then the way she was able to turn that around by small adjustments in her game, you know, she didn't give up her main plan A, which was to attack and control the rallies or step inside the baseline, but he went ahead – I mean, she, she went ahead and um, – started using controlled baseline aggression in other words maybe not go for the big shot on her first second opportunity but maybe hit it deep to the corners once or twice and then get that third or fourth ball and then attack the net and come to net and win the point so with that little adjustment that is not changing your plan a that is simply modifying your plan a she was able to win six games in a row and go from two four to six four two love and then simona Halep. Plays a great game at, uh, at, at 2 Dula, gets back to 2 1. And then Berta has played a, her, probably her worst game right there, four unforced errors to lose that game and, and let Simona get back to 2 0. But then she recovers mentally and, uh, and quickly. And she goes back up. And, and at 4 3, 5 3, 5 4, anytime that we got to 30 all points or 40 30 points, she either came up with a big serve or uh, with a big forehand or didn't make mistakes or a big drop shot uh, you know even the even on uh, on the on the match point that uh, that uh, she won it was a well hit drop shot off of an excellent return by Timona Halep so uh, that those are the kind of ones that really uh, give a player confidence, sake it's, it's not when you play fantastic from point, from first shot to the last shot, and you get off the court winning 6-1, 6-2, demolishing your opponent. Yes, those feel good, of course. But then you play those these type of matches where you where you play one of the best players in the world, possibly the best on clay courts at that at that time, and you don't necessarily start out well. You don't necessarily play your best, but you but you dig and dig and Use your mental capacity, your, your, your IQ, and strategize and somehow fabricate a win. Those are the, those are the types of wins that, that, uh, that prove a lot to yourself and to the viewers. So after watching this tournament, now I have to, I have to put Bertans as well in, in my top five uh, for Roland Garros for sure, so, even top five.
1: Who are your top five before we bring uh, Matt into the conversation?
2: Sure. I mean, for for the for the WTA, I'm still I still got Simona Halep uh, at the top of the line, even though she even though she lost to Bertens here. And there's Naomi Osaka. Uh, I've got uh, Kiki Bertens. I would like to know what Kerber's uh, injury situation is, because because uh, I have her there too. And uh, Sloane Stephens rounds up my my top five. But there's uh, there's there are plenty of players here that uh, that are you know not in my top five that could easily surprise me this is not uh by any means um, uh how should i put it the definitive list, n- list nothing like in men i mean on the women's side i have uh, a lot of trouble finding like separating three or four names from the rest of the um from the rest of the uh group so you know i'm gonna go with those five names but uh, there's some that, there could be some that enter easily into the equation. I mean, for example, you know, the world number two, Kritova, uh, I, the only reason why I didn't put her in there because I, I'll, put her, I'll put her right there if we're playing on hard courts or, or grass courts. So I just didn't do it because it was on clay. You know, there's Ashley Barty. You know, Matt, I'm sure has something to add, but uh, those, those would be my top players. I would still go with, with Haleb, Naomi Osaka, uh, Kiki Bertens, Slon Stevens and Angelique Kerber would
1: be my uh, my players to watch for the final. Okay, so Matt, <laughs> same question to you but before you weigh your top 5 or the power rankings as a writer who's covered tennis professionally for quite some time, would you call Kiki Bertens a late bloomer or do you think everyone has their own pulse on how, you know, they make their path? I mean, uh, what's your view on, you know, on her career and the kind of rise she's enjoying?
0: Well, you know, she isn't. She's not quite at the Stan Wawrinka stage. Uh, you know, she, you know, when she blo- began to blossom last year, making the Wimbledon quarterfinals and then winning Cincinnati, also against Halep, in the final. So, you know, I think I think in Burton's case, it's more of like a mid-career, mid-period uh, awakening rather than uh, a late stage. Um, so, you know, the, I I I put it in that particular classification. So my top five. Halep and Burton's would be one and two and probably in that order. And then uh, I do think Sloane Stevens has to be in the mix after her encouraging forward moving uh, Madrid tournament under Sven Gronefeld. and uh, Belinda Bencic would, would also have to be there. You know, she is making upward strides and then I'm going to leave the fifth one blank also because partly because I believe in waiting for the draw, partly because the WTA is so fluid uh, I probably would I would actually give Petra Kvitova a chance here, um, even though, you know, Clay is not you know, her best surface. You know, she she can still play well on Clay. She's been one of the most consistent WTA players this year. Uh, I, you know, I think she's right in the mix and the draw is going to be very interesting in terms of how the seeds line up. So if she gets the right path, she's she's certainly on the short list for me.
1: OK, so someone uh, who could be more casual about the, you know, the tennis and, you know, some of the some of the big names. And uh, so how, what would you tell them? Why isn't Alina Switolina in any of yours top five? Matt, you want to take a stab at that?
0: Because her health is such an uncertainty. You know, she's she's been uh, her, dealing with her knee. That's why she didn't do well in Madrid. So it's really a health reason there. And also with Kerber, you know, she, she hasn't been feeling great either.
1: Okay, so uh, Mert, uh, now you have Matt's list as well. And uh, I want to throw a question to you based on his list. But also, why is Osaka there in your top five? Because what I've heard, again, uh, Osaka is going to have some challenges on clay. She's not such an automatic when it comes to clay like she's on the hard courts. But you, you seem to have liked what you've seen in Madrid, I guess. And uh, and based on Matt's list, the second question is, where would Belinda Bencic fall in your Favorites or contenders, and however you want to break it down.
2: Um, I like Osaka's game on any surface, Saki, but Although I, I I do accept that uh, that uh, it may not be her best favor her best favorite surface because she's she's a great mover. She's a good defender, and uh, her shots are penetrating enough to where she on clay course she can still um, she can still do some damage. And and one thing that uh, Osaka does too does well too, especially on her backhand side, is can is. Hit the ball on the rise well you know take take another um uh, heavy hitter like uh kuto, for example kuto can hit the ball on the rise well too but uh, but on clay course sometimes the ball jumps up on her whereas osaka is able to make those adjustments especially on the on the backhand side better so i'm i'm gonna uh, and she's got good footwork and i also find osaka to be mentally persevering uh she's she's able to stay um you know sometimes she plays a very important point in a match say a 4-3 40 you know 30-40 break point and i see her prepare for the for that point with the same uh, cool-headed approach disposition as i see her play say a 1-love in the second set 30 all point so i i do think that naomi naomi osaka absorbs uh, intensity better and uh, and maybe her, her kind of laid-back uh, approach Reflects better in 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 tougher situations, and she's able to she's able to make the right decisions. So I do think Osaka has has a champion's attitude and approach when it comes to playing uh, on big stage. Uh, and your second question was about Belinda Bencic. Yes, but you know, I, like I said, I, I met, when I mentioned those five names, I said I could add another three or four names easily to this list, and Bencic at this point would be one of them. Uh, I've, I've been a Benches fan for, for a long time, you know, and I'm so glad that she's back, but, uh, a lot of the things that we're saying here, men or on the women's side, and I know it's a cliche and I know both of you already mentioned this, but this is just so for listeners, uh, for, for, for listeners who may, you know, who may need reminding is that, um, a lot of this depends on the draw, of course, you know, one once the draw is made, then come back. And uh, and I'll and, and we'll probably have much more solid um, groups of four or five players that we project to advance far in the tournament.
1: No, very very well said. And then there's another thing that uh, we can't talk about is the condition. And uh, Matt, you you probably uh, can weigh in here as well. Uh, this is a question for you now. So French Open is a tournament that has you know several di- you know kinds of weather. Sometimes it can be dry and uh, hot, and the ball does travel like the spin. Uh, like Rafa's ball or uh, Dominic Team's ball will have more acceleration and more bounce, or there could be uh, rainy damp conditions where like a Soderling or a Del Potro can hit through a big player. So with that uh, kind of imbalance of weather in mind, where does, what kind of weather you think will suit Petra Kavirova to make a deep run in Paris, Matt?
0: Well, you know, it's, uh, it's it, and this is why Roland Garros is tricky for her because you don't want the weather to be overpoweringly hot she doesn't do well there, but I do think that a faster track uh, would certainly help her because it would help her shots to penetrate through the court. You know, so you know, Madrid, you where she has done really well. The ball does move through the court uh, very well, but the other thing about Madrid is that it's usually cool and shady. You know, the La Caia Magica, the magic box. It's usually have a lot more shade on that court. Uh, so, so the, can, the the weather's usually not hot enough where it bothers her. So, you know, it's just getting days that are sunny but not too hot. Uh, that would be the best for Kvitova. But, you know, obviously that's a, that's a narrow needle to thread.
1: All right, and uh, last but not the least, Serena Williams back in action Rome, I think she's up against Rebecca Peterson. By the time the podcast is released, we'll know the fate of that, Matt. But overall, uh, she's kind of an unknown here. But, uh, Matt, and this is a question for both of you, Matt, you can go first. What do you expect of Serena at, at this point, when she's entering these majors, of course, you know she's in a league of her own. But uh, uh, has has the aura been impacted in your view? I mean, uh, it's it somewhat because you know her, uh, she, you know, the health hasn't been on her side, but she's played major finals. Uh, so, what do you expect of, of a clay season for Serena uh, with two weeks remaining for Roland Garros?
0: Well, the the main thing with Serena is that she just simply hasn't been able to stay healthy. And uh, if, if she can just get some health, uh, you know, then that that really is the first consideration for her. I mean, she didn't lose the Australian Open because of her tennis. She didn't lose uh, in, in Indian Wells because of her tennis. It's been health. Health has just dogged her this year. And health, interestingly enough, dogged her at Roland Garros last year. You know, she was going to play Maria Sharapova, but she had to uh, withdraw from the tournament. So health more than tennis has been the main thing for Serena. And so, you know, so if she can get a few matches in Rome and, uh, you know, work out some of the kinks, then, you know, who knows what's possible for her uh, in Paris.
1: And just to clarify, Matt, on my question about the aura, because you rightfully said Uh, you know, health is not on her side and she's lost matches that she was not in a position to lose, but then health intervened. So you think uh, just like NBA or, you know, or any sport, when a superstar starts losing matches, irrespective of the reason, you think there's more belief in the locker room? And uh, that's why I fielded that question.
0: See, I don't think the locker room uh, really thinks, ah, now we can get her because it's really not about what's what capabilities Serena has on her racket, it's really more of, you know, just is Serena going to be fit? And, you know, Serena's been working hard. I mean, the things that have felled her, you know, after that epic Azarenka match in Indian Wells, and when she, after she had match points against Klishkova in Melbourne, you know, it's not as though she was struggling with her tennis before these things happened. She was playing quality tennis, and then, you know, these these health things ambushed her. So, you know, I, I really don't think that the locker room senses more vulnerability in Serena because it's not tennis-based vulnerability. It's 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 these are other factors rising to the surface. And so, you know, if we if we have a late spring and early summer at Roland Garros and Wimbledon in which Serena's healthy, she's she's still at the very top of the field. And but we just need to See if if the health gods or goddesses, as it were, are going to cooperate with Serena this time.
1: All right, very well said. So, Mert, let's uh, final thoughts on this episode on Serena Williams. If we can wrap it up, and uh, uh, you want to add something to what uh, what Matt said. And she's still a force, you know. She's still Serena Williams, uh, depending, you know, like how healthy she is when she laces up for for the next slam.
2: Uh, I think the Serena Williams topic brings up. Uh, a larger issue of trying to predict these types of things now I, I, it's hard to for example pinpoint right now where Serena stands I mean it's almost you uh, know it, it almost pushes us towards a conversation that's bound to be inane in the sense that uh, it doesn't uh, we, we can't really tell what to expect from Serena but I but I but I agree with you uh, Saqib in the in the in context of, of the concept of aura that you bring up, let's imagine for one second that uh, that Serena ends up having a good run in Rome and say she reaches semifinals or better or, and, and has a couple of good wins under her belt and, and seems to get through the week without any health-related issues, uh, because Matt is uh, 100% right on, on, on the health issue once she gets to French Open and and, and, uh, and the draw is about to be made no player is going to want to be you know the players are going to want to stay far from her as possible and and you know she has a good run in Rome I may be tempted to put her back in my five top five because that's how good she is you know Serena has Serena can uh, can beat any player on a good day but again at this point today it's just really really difficult to um, to come up with a modicum of uh, of uh, Prediction on what will what, how Serena can do simply because we haven't seen much of her because of health related issues. So I say let's uh, let's wait four or five days and we're going to have a much better idea about her. And I would actually say the same thing for some of the other things that we've talked about it uh, about too. You know, we just for example uh, mentioned uh, some players who did really well and then some players who didn't do well. You know, what happens if uh, if for example we go you know, Rome tournament starts and all of a sudden we have a player like, uh, oh, I don't know, Medvedev, who goes to the final in, on, on the men's side or even maybe pulls up a shocking win, then where do, where do we put him when the when French Open begins? Or on the women's side, let's say we have Petra Martic, who now goes to Rome and all of a sudden reaches the final and loses in a t- tough three-setter to say Simona Halep. Where do we put her next week if we were to talk about the same topics? So uh, I, think, I think after Rome, we're going to have a much better idea of some of these question marks. Serena I mean, no, leading the question mark, of course. No, I, I think on that uh, regard, you
1: did answer the question because that's how you both didn't include Sitsipas. It's all about a body of work. It's all about repetition of cycles in terms of results. So I guess if, does, if, if a Medvedev or a Martich does that, but I think it's about repeatability, can you put them in the same, you know, bracket as some of the other men and women if, you know, on, on a two-week tournament. So I think, yeah, these are all fair questions, but I think we covered quite a lot. Matt, any parting uh, uh, thoughts from you before we wrap the show?
0: Oh, just, just the basic reminder to wait for the draw before making any overly finite statements uh, about who's the favorite, who's just a contender, who has no shot. You know, there are so many different um, combinations that one can come up with. And I want to reiterate something I wrote about the WTA a few weeks ago at TennisAccent.com. It was the story titled, The Time on the WTA Tour is Not 11.55, it's 5 to 12. And what I mean by that is when you look at 5 through 12, players who are going to play each other in the fourth round, you in many ways ha- are are likely to have tougher more interesting matches than the players uh, one through four versus 13 through 16 Serena's in the five to 12 group Sabalenka's is in the five to 12 group uh, Benchich with a good Rome tournament could be in the five to 12 group Barty's in the five to 12 group uh, Burton now Burton's moved up to number four, but let, let's see uh, where the dust settles uh, after Rome. So um, that five, those five to 12 seed spots for the WTA Keep in mind how those line up at the French Open.
1: All right. On that note, uh, thanks for everyone who listens to this show and uh, supports our podcast. This is Saket signing off with Matt and Murd. We'll be back with another episode next week. Bye for now.